1: Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery. I think once they married, almost immediately, they realized they'd absolutely got nothing in common. And... I think Charles treated her with indifference rather than cruelty. It made her feel that she was less of a woman, even though she was still a girl. She was a very
2: naive little girl when she got married. She grew up during that marriage and after the marriage. There is some discrepancy as
1: whether she threw herself downstairs or whether she fell downstairs. Certainly, she had taken at some stage to self-harming.
3: 26 years before Diana, Princess of Wales, climbed into the Mercedes and sped through Paris to a tragic end, the world first met her as Lady Diana Spencer, the painfully shy 19-year-old fiancé of Prince Charles, heir to the British throne and 13 years her senior. It was to be the beginning of a journey that would see her intimidated by her husband and she would eclipse him to become the most famous woman in the world.
0: I think Charles find it very difficult to deal with the fact that Diana overshadowed him in popularity, I don't think he quite knew how to deal with her uh, huge popularity. You know, he used to make a joke of it: "Oh, everybody wants to talk to Diana," but it was true. Everybody did want to talk to Diana.
3: Hello, and welcome to episode two of Fatal Voyage: Diana Case Solved. I'm your host, retired homicide detective Colin McLaren. I've come to Paris to investigate for myself the 22-year riddle of Diana's death. And together, we're going to see if we can finally get some answers. In this episode, we're going back to the beginning to see how Diana's marriage to Prince Charles turned from fairy tale to nightmare, and sowed seeds for much of what was to follow. Author and former Vanity Fair editor Tina Brown remembers the first time she met Diana.
2: I first met her face to face in November 1981. It was a few months after her wedding. She was a fresh, young, newlywed and it was at the American Embassy at a dinner party. What really struck me was just how incredibly young and shy she was. She really was like almost like a schoolgirl. She blushed and she smiled and she made very charming small talk and she hung on Prince Charles' every word. He was much, much more accomplished and poised.
3: Diana may have seemed outwardly to be the demure, slightly overawed, blushing bride. But in truth, she came from an aristocratic family that was arguably older and more distinguished than the House of Windsor.
1: This was a young woman who, despite her sort of noble birth and upbringing, very privileged upbringing, she was, a, don't forget, the daughter of an aristocrat.
4: Her father, Lord Spencer, was an equity to the Queen's father, King George VI, and even was an equity to the Queen for the first two years of her reign. So the Spencers were well entrenched in royalty with an extraordinary dynasty.
2: It was the Queen Mother who had eyeballed Diana first, I think she was 15 or 16, at the wedding of her elder sister at Jane Fellows. And the Queen Mother had noted that she was a very charming and fresh and attractive, well-pedigreed girl. The Spencers were a tremendous family in England who were very close to the royal family. And she had noted her and kind of filed her away and brought, kept suggesting her.
3: Charles had even briefly dated Diana's sister, Sarah, one of several relationships he enjoyed throughout his 20s. Prince Charles was a bit of a playboy at this time in the early 80s, so there were lots of ladies lining up, waiting to be the next Princess of Wales, knowing that their next role would be Queen. So the Prince of Wales had a pick of the bunch.
2: Well, at the time that Charles really proposed to Diana. I mean, he was at the end of sort of a decade of being the most eligible bachelor in England. In those days, he was very, very dashing, and he was the toast of the town when it came to being an eligible man. So he'd had a long passage of dating sexy bachelor girls, upper-class debutantes, bond girl-type blondes, the daughters of country squires. So he'd been to a tremendous kind of long list of girls.
3: But as Tina Brown explains, once he turned 30, serious royals began to look towards the future. Charles was going to be king one day, and one of the most important duties of any king is to provide an heir.
2: The royal family were getting impatient. They began to think, OK, this is fine, but now you've got to find yourself somebody with a good background, who's from a pedigreed family, who you could actually marry and will put an end to this. Otherwise, it could become somewhat like the king who abdicated Edward Eighth, who you know, endlessly played the field and then horrified everyone when, in fact, it turned out that he was in love with a married woman, Wallace Simpson. In February 1981, the waiting was over. Buckingham Palace announced that Prince Charles and Lady Diana were engaged. The ring was a sapphire surrounded by diamonds. The couple looked happy and relaxed, delighted, like everyone else, that a wedding would take place. Earl Spencer and Lady Diana's stepmother celebrated among the crowds outside the palace gates. Inside, Lady Diana was facing up to a future she could hardly
4: have dreamt of. Difficult of her right sort of word, isn't it, really? Just delighted and happy. And I'm amazed that she's been brave enough to take me on. (laughs) And I suppose in love. Of course. (laughs) Whatever in love means. (laughs) Well, it obviously means, uh, means two very happy people.
3: And of course, Charles had been involved with a married woman himself—old flame Camilla Parker Bowles. More on her later.
4: Camilla was, like you not, in a long time relationship with the prince before he met Diana. But at that time, in the in the seventies and the eighties, it was never to be possible for, at that time, a married woman, Camilla, even before to marry the Prince of Wales.
3: She looked like a princess from a fairy tale. Radiantly happy and accompanied by her father, the eighth Earl Spencer, Diana bewitched not only the nation, but the world at her marriage to Prince Charles on July the 29th, 1981. It was the start of a golden age for the British Royal family. The 20 year old Lady Diana Spencer, the first English girl in 500 years to marry a Prince of Wales. The eyes of the world were on her and she knew it.
0: Here is the stuff of which fairy tales are made. The prince and princess on their wedding day. But fairy tales usually end at this point with the simple phrase, they lived happily ever after.
3: On July 29th, 1981, Lady Diana walked up the aisle of the ancient St. Paul's Cathedral in London and became Princess Diana. It had all hallmarks of a fairy tale wedding, but the problems were there almost from the start. Diana
4: had no experience. You know, it was thrust into that role as a 19-year-old.
2: It could have been like a father and daughter, quite honestly. The difference between them and age seems so great.
1: Diana, I think, was in love, madly in love with Charles. But for her, the scales fell from her eyes fairly quickly when she realised that he was very much set in his ways and he wasn't going to change.
3: Richard Kay was Royal Correspondent for the Daily Mail newspaper at that time and gained unique insight into the royal marriage.
1: It was an unhappy marriage. They were ill-suited. They barely knew each other when they married. They'd only met on a dozen occasions before they got engaged. In the early days of their relationship, she had to call him sir. I mean, all these things seem utterly laughable looking back now, but we're only talking about 30 odd, 25 years or so ago. The other thing you've got to remember is she had married a man who was 12 years older than herself who had vastly different interests. Donna was an extremely young woman when she got married. She never had the kind of normal relationships that young couples have before they marry. I feel there's sympathy on both sides. It's hard not to have sympathy for Prince Charles. he married this beautiful young woman. He felt under huge pressure to marry her, not just from the public, but also from his own father. He made a terrible mistake. The real courageous thing he should have done was to have called it off. But he couldn't do that, and he didn't do that, and he's had to live with the consequences ever since.
3: Diana had found herself in a gilded cage. Her dashing prince had turned out to be a rather set in his ways older man with whom she shared almost nothing in common. And worse, she was not only living with him, but with a whole palace full of similarly stuck in the mud people too.
0: The problem with he could never understand her. He doesn't understand women. But he was never brought up in an environment where he had to learn to
4: understand anybody. All his needs were catered for. She was unhappy and a young woman unable to deal with the fact of being a princess without any help from anybody within the Palace. There was no manual of how to be a princess. There were no training courses. She was thrust into this situation and literally had to get on with it.
3: To millions, Diana was living a dream-come-true life. But behind the palace walls, her loneliness was becoming all-consuming. Half the royal family, it seemed, resented her, and the other half actively disliked her.
0: Diana was very fearful of her father-in-law. She was
4: very frightened of her.
3: Here's Ken Wharf, Diana's personal bodyguard for much of her marriage. There must have been moments that must have
4: been horrific for her. Loneliness. You know, people have imagined that Buckingham Palace, Kensington Palace, you know, is alive with fire eaters, jugglers, musicians. But it isn't. It isn't it's a very lonely place. You know, it's a pre-like existence. And I'm sure there's a lot that went through Diana's minds of what what am I gonna do? What am I gonna leave? What, what's happening to me? Where am I gonna leave? Where will I end up? The one thing you want in mind is actually your freedom, is your right to do what you want, when you want. But that's the price you pay, or they pay, for being royal.
3: In November 1981, it was announced that Diana was pregnant, and less than a year after she married Charles, she bore him a son, Prince William. Two years after that, she gave birth again to Prince Harry. Charles had done his duty, the succession was assured. And now Diana had provided the so called air and a spare. Her usefulness was effectively over. What followed were to be the darkest days of Diana's life.
1: She did turn to psychics, alternative healers, and they, in a way, sort of filled the void, vacuum of, of, of her empty social life. She didn't have that many friends, and the people who helped her deal with the stresses and strains in her life. It's kind of sad, really, when you think this beautiful young woman who was adored by the world should have no real close friends. It told you a lot about her and it told you a lot about her situation.
3: One of those psychic healers who went on to become a close friend of Diana's was Simone Simmons.
0: She was a perfectly normal woman. When any normal woman is stuck in an environment where they're completely deprived of love understanding and people to really talk to of course it's going to have a, an adverse effect on the psyche
1: and that's what it did. But Donna was still a very young woman, I mean she was only 20, 21 years old she'd hardly had a life she'd hardly had a boyfriend before she met Charles and here she was in the midst of the most famous family in the world and suddenly getting all this global attention. Is it any wonder that she found it hard to cope All she wanted was
0: understanding and hugs and kisses and love. You know, a show of affection. But because he wasn't brought up in that environment, he didn't know how to show love. And it's very, very sad for both of them.
3: In despair, Diana turned her unhappiness on herself. She developed eating disorders, starving herself, forcing herself to throw up.
0: I don't think Charles understood, certainly to begin with, the bulimia. And he didn't understand the self-harming. A lot of people didn't. It was Diana that really put it out there, that people felt they could talk about it. She got this kind of release from cutting herself, which now, of course, people understand so much
3: more about. And in one incident, even endangering the life of her then unborn baby.
1: This is the time she was pregnant with Prince William, but nevertheless, she did fall or threw herself down a flight of stairs at Sandrian, the Queen's estate in Norfolk, England, and the Queen Mother found her at the bottom of the stairs, and obviously they had to call a doctor to make sure the unborn child was all right. Diana herself said to me, that yes, she did throw herself
4: down some stairs. I said, why can't I you? out. Why would you throw Oh well, I was just so, was just so unhappy. You know, just, you know, I just wanted people to learn, you know. Exactly what I said earlier. It was a real
1: quest for look at me. You know, nobody's listening to me. She was desperately unhappy, and she wanted people to know that she was unhappy. And she found no one would listen to her. They all thought, oh, it's just a question of Diana, you've just got to adjust, you've just got to pull yourself together and get on with it and be, you know, a stiff British upper lip and just pull yourself together, you're in the royal family.
0: The thing is, Charles would never grow up, never, never, never. He always had to have his own way, he still has to have his own way.
3: The part of Charles having his own way included rekindling his relationship with Camilla Parker-Bowles, even as his young, desperately unhappy wife was at her absolute lowest.
2: Diana felt the threat of Camilla very early. He always felt she was the love of his life. Then when the marriage began to go wrong, which was pretty early on, the wedding, even the engagement was going wrong, the feelings for Camilla sort of surfaced again.
3: According to Tina Brown, Diana's suspicions that Charles and Camilla had never truly ended their relationship again before they even got married.
2: During the engagement, she was absolutely devastated when she found in Charles's private secretary's office a package that was destined to go to Camilla, which was a bracelet that Charles had bought her, engraved with G and F, which was... It was a nickname between them. And she was livid. Then, on the honeymoon she was further devastated when charles appeared at dinner wearing a pair of cufflinks that camilla had bought for him and then she started to overhear phone calls she started to hear uh, hurried quiet calls between charles and camilla which which charles would be taking from the bathroom clearly that she didn't want her to hear and she always felt camilla was in their marriage and that she couldn't somehow get her out of course that feeling grew and it was almost a self-perpetuating prophecy because by she was so deeply jealous and so became so deeply paranoid about Camilla that in a sense, she, in a way, almost willed the truth to be as it was, which was that they became reinvolved.
3: The suspicions proved to be well-founded.
4: Camilla, from my time in the mid-80s, was very present. You know, it's a fact that when Diana would leave High Grove House on a Sunday afternoon to return to London with her children for school, you know, in a very short period of time thereafter, Camilla would arrive at High Grove House. That was not that
1: happened. Diana believed, and I'm not sure this is entirely true, but she believed that Charles never really let go of Camilla throughout the course of their marriage. There was nothing secret about the Prince of Wales's relationship with Camilla.
4: When everybody inside Buckingham Palace and Kent knew exactly what was happening. This was the problem.
1: We know from Charles' own confession when he admitted. He'd been unfaithful. He said he, it had happened after he had tried everything to make his marriage work. The question is, when you dated from. we all reckon it was around about 1986. And then they struggled on for another six years before they separated. Camilla was supposed to have been her friends. But like I said, with friends like that. Who on earth needs
0: enemies?
3: Diana's bodyguard, Ken Wolf remembers one incident in particular when Diana's despair at her husband's betrayal led her to finally confront the woman he was betraying her with, a Camilla's sister, Annabelle's 40th birthday party.
4: And I don't think really that, that the prince anticipated that Diana would really accept this invitation, knowing full well that Camilla would be there.
2: I remember driving with them both to Richmond and very
4: little was said in the car anything at all. And we arrived. And I imagine actually think the vast majority of the guests they're expecting Diana there either because once the door had opened, it was like, and well, what I can liken it to is like freeze-framing a shot in a movie with absolute horror when they saw that Diana was there. And I'd been there for about 40 minutes, forty minutes, maybe a bit longer, a couple an of and I heard my name being called outside. And it was Diana, and Diana said, I can't find my husband or Camilla? And within a short period of time, we found the prince, and Camilla sat on a sofa, away from the other case. And I didn't quite know what Diana was gonna do now, and I sat, stood there in anticipation of realising, or thinking, what she might do. It was a sort of moment of silence, from we until eventually Diana with a great deal of courage, and confidence, Went across to Camilla and said, Listen, please don't treat me like an idiot. I know exactly what's going on. And then Camilla said something which I'll never forget. She said, Well, it's okay for you. You've got two marvellous boys, two wonderful boys. And that, I don't think really was able to sort of understand what she was talking about, because I certainly did. And the prince was looking very good at the I tried not to excuse myself, and I said, No, stay just wait there, okay, wait there. There were some other exchanges. And said, oh, eventually, they all returned to where the room was. And we returned to the car at the end of the evening. Nothing was said on the return journey back to Kensington House.
3: Diana's humiliation was complete. Rejected by her husband, scorned by Camilla, ignored by the royals, desperately alone and suffering from self-harming issues, she embarked on a series of affairs of her own. I think she was desperately searching for love. And I think when she... She didn't find love with Prince Charles. She looked for it elsewhere.
4: Diana was like any other young woman. She wanted a relationship with a man. She wanted that sexual enjoyment that such a
1: relationship brings. She wanted love and affection. Of course she did. But mainly I think she wanted company because she was, for a lot of the time, quite lonely.
3: Diana's only fidelities included dashing cavalry officer James Hewitt, car salesman James Gilby an art dealer, Oliver Hoare, who was not only married, but a close friend of Prince Charles.
4: It was very difficult for Diana to to find a relationship with another man because every move that she made was done under the eyes of somebody unknown or a lurking paparazzi that was out for the story.
2: The whole situation with Jane Hewitt, whom she admitted on her famous
1: Panorama interview that she had adored and had been in love with, was also going to be extremely complicated. She was married to the heir to the throne. He was a soldier in the army who had sworn allegiance to Diana's own mother-in-law, the Queen. Oliver
4: Hoare was a friend of the Prince of Wales. This was slightly more difficult. And he was a married man living in Kensington Earl's Court. She used to see him at his his art shop in, in Belgrade, and he would visit Kensington Palace. And yes, you know, one evening I remember the fire alarm sounding, and uh, I went downstairs and found all, of, all sort of sort of semi-naked at the front door, chomping on the end of a, of a Monte Cristo cigar. It was a cigar that actually set off the alarm. Anyway, everyone found that rather entertaining. I mean, you know, I wasn't surprised. I knew Paul was in the building. The fact that I actually had to see him half-naked from was was slightly, slightly alarming.
3: When Diana's affair with another of her bodyguards, Barry Manneke, became the subject of palace gossip, he was summarily dismissed from his position.
4: So when Barry Manneke was seen talking to the princess in her drawing room on her sofa, they didn't like it. And eventually it gets back to the Prince of Worms that one of the policemen is sitting down with his wife in her drawing room having a discussion. Well, you can draw it all kinds of suspicions for that. But when you do that in front of the Windsor that Barry Manneke did lose his job for being not necessarily over-familiar, but breaking the golden rule of being seen by other members of the household.
3: The year after his dismissal, in 1987, Maneki died suddenly when his motorbike was involved in a freak road accident. Diana spent the rest of her life convinced he'd been killed by the security services.
1: I think a lot of this time, this was sort of her seeking out somebody whom Charles might get jealous of, who might come back to her. Well, you've got to assume that Prince Charles is a red-blooded man. I can only put myself in issues. I would be annoyed, jealous, angry, upset. But it's how you deal with it and what you do about it that marks you out.
3: Finally, it seemed, Diana had had enough of being pushed around. After over a decade of misery, unbearable loneliness, lost love, self-harm, humiliation and rejection at the hands of the royal family, she vowed to fight back. The rogue princess was born and she had a weapon in her armory they simply couldn't handle.
2: Well, Donna had a charisma that became more and more apparent as she came more and more into the limelight. What she had was this marvellous kind of vulnerability. She wore her heart on her sleeve.
1: She somehow seemed to resonate with people in a way that she seemed to identify with their problems. She had an ordinariness about her that was quite remarkable. No other member of the royal family was quite like it.
3: Donna may have been miserable behind the palace walls, but to the public, she was a star, and the other royals simply couldn't compete with her.
4: She was actually, from day one, too good at a job. She brought about a style of royal delivery that we'd never seen before. This ability to speak to people across a huge social spectrum in a way that was endearing to the public. You know, I witnessed it in the mid-80s. It was extraordinary. No one over the royal family had ever been able to do this. Not even the prince himself. He had a very sort of static way of talking to people, you know. It was very monosyllabic. Diana was, you know, how are you? What are you doing here? God, I like your dress, I mean, you know, where did you get that from? Oh, I bet you. And then when when a member of the other side of the railings gets that from the royal family, which never happened, I hey, who is this one? And her popularity grew rapidly.
2: In a rope line, she would get down on her knees and bend down and talk to children as if she was their mom. She would have great personal conversations with people and made them feel very special. And that was completely different from how the royals had interacted before or a royal walkabout was a very stiff concern. member of the royal family, if it was a woman, would be wearing gloves and there would be a kind of rather stock and stiff piece of small talk, and then they would move on to the next one. That wasn't true with Diana. She was always personal, always involved, very huggy, very willing to give a child a kiss, all of these things. It made her just irresistible to the British public. They felt, as Tony Blair called her later, that she was the people's princess.
3: Next time on Fatal Voyage, Diana, case solved. The world idolised
1: the Prince of Wales. So Diana was sort of following a new route, if you like, because there hadn't been such a popular figure who retained the affection of the British public and the world public while still being a member of the Royal Family.
2: You actually have Prince Charles coming down to breakfast when it was published, not knowing what was going to be in the paper that morning and f- opening the newspaper and seeing this headline in the Sunday Times about Diana's repeated suicide attempt.
1: The royal family wanted Diana just to creep away and hide under a rock. They didn't want to hear any more about her. But that was not Diana's intention.
2: Diana made a great many enemies too with some of her charities that she picked.
0: People were saying to her, you yeah, know, you don't know what you're dealing with. Stop putting your nose
3: where it's not wanted. Fatal Voyage, Diana, Case Solved, is hosted by me, Colin McLaren, executive produced by Dylan Howard, and is a production of Broad and Water Studios and Endeavour Audio. Executive producers also include Tom Freestone, James Robertson and Andy Tillett. The series is produced by Billy Spear and written by Dominic Utton, reporting by Aaron Tinney and Doug Montero, with additional research by me, Colin McLaren. The series is mixed and engineered by Sean Cravett, Sam Adder, and Ben's Town. There is so much more to this story, and you don't want to miss anything, I can assure you. Make sure you subscribe to Fatal Voyage, Diana, Case Solved, wherever you get podcasts.